Welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, shared strategy. Our two countries are bound by geography and history. But as we see elsewhere in the world, being neighbors does not guarantee being allies. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken show a united front on global issues after Blinken's first visit to Canada. But what are the key domestic concerns and the irritants in U.S.-Canada relations right now? And how will the U.S. help shape Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy? Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman, will join us. Then, provincial push. All we're trying to do is send a message to the federal governments that this is a, a very important issue for Canadians. Paging Dr. Purcell. Canada's premiers launch a new ad campaign in a bid to pressure the federal government to increase health care funding. Is asking for more money, oversimplifying the challenges facing our strained health care system. Why won't provinces agree to federal health transfers with strings attached? Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, who is leading this campaign, joins us. Plus, bank under fire. The message to Canadians is, look, we know inflation's too high and we know it's hitting you everywhere. The Bank of Canada is facing renewed political pressure in the wake of another key interest rate hike. Could criticism interfere with its independence? And what can we expect in the federal government's fall economic statement later this week? We'll speak to former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge, then former Finance Minister John Manley joins us on the scrub. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. A show of unity in a world with looming global threats. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken came to Ottawa on Thursday for his first in-person state visit. While Canada and the U.S. showcased agreement on some major international issues, there are still some questions on matters closer to home. Blinken, along with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, expressed a shared desire to find ways to restore stability in Haiti, increase support for Ukraine, and improve security in the Arctic. Jolie also announced more strategic dialogue with the U.S. on developing Canada's upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy. But domestic issues persist. There remains tension on the status of the Nexus program, which allows pre-screened travelers to cross the border more quickly. It mostly benefits Canadians. Canada and the U.S. are in disagreement over how the program should run. So what are the key concerns in U.S.-Canada relations right now? And could we see U.S. President Biden visit Canada in the near future? Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Hello, Ambassador. Good to have you on the program. Um, I, I want to ask you about the, the, the recent visit of um, the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. So there were no faux pas, no big oops. So the diplomat in you must have been really happy about it. Um, I'm wondering if his visit is a precursor to a visit by President Joe Biden. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Really, really nice to be with you. Uh, it was it was actually a very uh, excellent visit from our perspective. We had two full days with the secretary and his his team. So we had some some very uh, important and detailed meetings as to whether it's a precursor for the, the president's visit. I mean, the president is is has said several times now that he wants to come to Canada as soon as possible. He's got an election happening down here in the U.S. 
Uh, well, the Congress has an election coming up, so he's got his hands full for the next little while, but we, we look forward to welcoming him soon. So one of the big issues during uh, Mr. Blinken's uh, visit is the situation in Haiti. So that's a country dealing with gang wars, gang violence, shortages, food, fuel, water, um, and also dealing with a surge in cases of cholera. Police can't control the situation. Um, so the U.S. seems to want Canada to take a leading role in restoring some sort of stability. Um, you know, Mr. Blinken even spoke of a possible mission. Could that mission be led uh, by Canada, you know, who has a country that has an expertise in, in dealing with Haiti? So, you know, you're really right to point out the complexity and the, the terribly grave situation in Haiti right now. It's, it's very worrying. Canada sent a, um, a group of officials, a mission, down to Haiti. They are there right now and they're coming back and they were reporting to us at the end of the week and into next week on their findings. We're going to use that to assess the situation on the ground um, and to find out, you know, what it is that we think is, is needed down there from our own fact-gathering mission. The U.S. had a similar mission about two weeks ago that they, they did or a week and a half ago that they did. In terms of our conversation with the Secretary of State, you know, we talked a lot about Haiti. We talked with the, with the minister, with the prime minister, um, with his team of experts, and we talked about how we come to conceive of a joint action amongst Canada, the U.S., and many different allies who are interested in being down there that is going to lead to some kind of a, a, a stabilizing situation for the Haitians that can be implemented by the Haitians, that is what they are looking for. But Haitian people are going through a, 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 an incredible crisis right now. It, 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 uh, so I'm wondering how quickly could such a mission be set up? And is there actual talk that Canada would lead that mission? So Canada is, as I say, we are going to assess what it is that we can do based on the fact-finding uh, mission of Canadians that we have sent down there. And we are going to talk with the many, many international partners in the region, in the CARICOM, but around the world who are interested in also participating in doing what they can to help the Haitians. Uh, so we will have to, you know, go through that process before we can determine what the best contribution is for Canada. But there's no question that the situation is, is dire, as you say, and we want to be able to you know, take step forwards as soon as possible. The United Nations is very seized of this issue, as you know well, um, and so there are many discussions happening about it in New York in, in, as well as in, you know, Ottawa, Washington, and capitals around the world. So from one uh, dire situation to the other, I'm going to take you to Ukraine. So the biggest supporter has been uh, Washington um, so far. So midterms are around the corner. You mentioned that, Ambassador. Uh, Republicans and even some Democrats are saying that the U.S. should probably, you know, scale back perhaps the help that is giving Ukraine, whereas that Ukraine needs more and more help. Is that something that you are watching? And if the Americans indeed start scaling back, would Canada have to step up its help? So I think the first thing to say, just so that, you know, Canadians recognize this, is since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the United States uh, Congress has been deeply supportive of the Ukrainian people. And in fact, it's been a full and complete bipartisan uh, support there. Uh, we did talk to the secretary about this. And in fact, he, he spoke about it publicly as well. And I think that what, what was very encouraging and important to hear 
was that he said that in his discussions with those people who are in the leadership roles um, in Congress, in funding and passing the legislation that's required by the American system uh, to provide humanitarian and military and other support to Ukraine, uh, they are, remain deeply committed, both Republicans and Democrats. And so his, his conversations with those people, his private conversations uh, with those people shows no sign of wavering in their support. So I know we're going from one to another, but I'd like to, uh, to hear you on, you know, Minister Melanie Jolie also announced the first Canada-U.S. strategic dialogue on its Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. Is this a, a signal that Canada is following uh, in U.S. in in the U.S. lead when it comes to you know its Indo-Pacific strategy. So Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy um, is is under development, and the minister has said you know that it will be released before Christmas. I, I'm not sure on the exact timing of it, but it will be released before Christmas. It is a Canadian policy. It is based on Canadian the interests of Canadians, the interests of Canada, Canadians' perspectives as a Pacific nation. So that policy will come out and it will frame what we're doing in the region and it will be, as all, you know, all of our policies are, they are derived from the needs and interests and priorities of Canada and Canadians. Um, but obviously the U.S. is our closest partner, our closest trading partner, our closest security partner, also a Pacific neighbor and nation. Um, and we will want to make sure that where we can and do work with them, uh, it can be, we can amplify each other's activities. So the dialogue that, that you mentioned that, that is, is going to be scheduled between Canada and the U.S. is going to look at the range of issues that are important to us uh, both in the Indo-Pacific. Of course, there are economic and trade issues there, but there are also issues around resiliency, um, climate change, climate resiliency, uh, energy security, national security, making sure that it's a region that is open, that is, is secure, um, that is inclusive. So we, we have a lot to talk about um, and we have a lot in common in terms of our objectives in the region. Um, so we want to talk with the Americans as well as with um, all of the broader partners in the Indo-Pacific. We have to leave it at that. Canadian Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. When we come back, turning up the heat. Premiers are renewing a push to get more health care money from the federal government. Why won't premiers accept health care transfer increases with strings attached? Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Health care haggling. Canada's premiers are renewing a call for the federal government to increase their health care transfers as systems across the country continue to be pushed beyond capacity amid staffing shortages. The provinces say they need Ottawa to invest $28 billion above its current commitments to bring the federal share of health care spending from 22% to 35%. But in the past, the federal government has said it wants to see more tangible results before giving a green light to any increase. Healthcare is also top of mind for Canadians. A recent Nanos research poll shows it's the second most important issue of concern. And Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos will be meeting with his provincial and territorial counterparts in the next couple of weeks. So, why won't premiers accept healthcare transfer increases with strings attached? 
and what can break this political stalemate as many hospitals face a winter under further strain. Joining me now is Manitoba Premier and Chair of the Council of the Federation for Canada's Premiers, Heather Stephenson. Premier, welcome to Question Period. It's good to have you on the show. Um, I, I want to start about your, your national campaign that you've launched on billboards and print online, uh, which states, and I'll quote it, as federal health care funding disappears, so will our doctors and so will our nurses. So is, is the message um, that you're launching here is that this is the federal government's fault? I think what it is is that we all need to be in this together and you, you'll know Joyce that um, originally when the Canada Health transfer was started in our country it was a 50-50 split between the federal government and the provincial governments and that has dwindled down to about 22% on the part of the federal government and so all we're trying to do is send a message to the federal government that this is a, a very important issue for Canadians we really just want that opportunity to sit down and have a conversation about this. But the federal government already knows that. Wouldn't it be oversimplifying the problem by chalking up this, this staff shortages and what is happening across the country in emergency wards and in hospital to, to just chalk it up to a lack of funding? Is there, you know, do you bear no responsibility on the way you manage your own health cares in, in, in your provinces? You know what, we are very accountable every day as provincial governments uh, across the country uh, and territorial governments across the country. Uh, every day we are accountable to, uh, to Manitobans, to Canadians when it comes to health care. Health care, of course, is under provincial jurisdiction. But again, when the Canada Health Transfer was, was started back in the 60s, it was a 50-50 funding model, and that has dwindled away down to 22% to by the federal government. So simply all we're asking for here is, is to get back up to that 35% range. We're not even asking for 50%, but you know we all have to be in this together. It's one of the number one issues across our country, and I think it's very important that we're in this together as a partnership. So it seems that the federal government's message to you is we will transfer, but it's with conditions. Would that be so difficult for provinces to accept? Well, I think one of the challenges is that every province and territory is unique in terms of the needs for, um, for those dollars. Uh, we all have, you know, different uh, priorities and, and so on. I mean, obviously, human resources is the number one issue uh, across the country, and I think we can work uh, together on, on that, of course. But there's other areas, and, and really this is under, you know, provincial and territory ju uh, jurisdiction, and we need to keep it that way. Let me ask you a, a hypothetical question. If the federal government came up to you and said, here, we're going to give you this budget for long-term care. We know what happened in long-term cares across the country if the government gave you that and said okay to to the premiers at least fix that because we know that was a problem across the country would that be an acceptable an acceptable result so, yeah i mean one of the the challenges joyce is that um you know often that kind of funding is one-off and that's what they have been doing and they've been saying, okay, we want you to put it towards mental health addictions. We want you to put it towards long-term care. I mean, these are some of the, the decisions that need to be made at the local level, and they need to be ongoing. So every single year, we need to have that funding. And the problem is that the federal government sort of announces these things, and they're kind of one-off funding. That doesn't help for the long-term for 
Canadians. And so what we're asking for is a long-term commitment getting back up to that 35% uh, range for the on behalf of the federal, you know, on the federal government's part. We are spending a lot of money in Canada mm -hmm. on healthcare already. According to Statistics Canada, for instance, healthcare was the largest expense among provinces, territories and local governments in 2019. You know, it accounted for one-third of total spending. So why are we not seeing the result of that? Are you prepared to see that perhaps there is an effort that provinces can make as well? Well, we're very much results-oriented uh, as a province in Manitoba. I know that other provinces and territories are very results-oriented. Again, you know, we're the ones in the front line. We're the ones that are accountable to the people within our, our provinces and territories. But what the challenge is, is again, when the funding, it's, it's encroaching in our provincial, uh, our, our provincial um, uh, budgets, right? It, it's starting to become more and more a part of our provincial budgets because it's becoming less and less uh, from the federal government. And so that's a significant challenge when it comes to, uh, you know, managing our own budgets. We have to think of other things like education, other social services, you know, that we need to provide for, for Manitobans and for Canadians as well. And so, again, we just want to get back up to, you know, a reasonable range where we have adequate, predictable and stable funding uh, you know, in, from the federal government when it comes to health care. Millions of Canadians don't have a family physician. Um, and we're seeing that doctors and nurses are leaving uh, for, you know, greener pastures uh, elsewhere where they are paid more, where their job conditions are better. How do you attract, retain yeah. or attract uh, those, uh, those health care people that we need so badly here? Well, recruitment, retention, and training is obviously, uh, you know, something that certainly in our province is, uh, is a priority. Uh, human resources across the board, not just doctors, but obviously nurses, is a, is a significant challenge. And so we have made that a priority. We've announced 400 more nursing seats in the province of Manitoba. We've also got internationally educated nurses that we're trying to get trained and, and, and uh, into the front line. Uh, so these are some of the things that we're working towards. But and it, I know other provinces are doing that too. But, is but we it, need to be able to have those resources to be able to, to attract those people here as well. But, but Premier, is it acceptable to you? that six million Canadians don't have a family doctor. Is it time, Premier, to have an independent body to see how federal health care money uh, is really being spent and ensure that Canadians are seeing the results? Because what we're seeing now is a crumbling system. So an independent body, perhaps, would that be a solution? You know, I, I, I'm open to any ideas out there that people have that uh, could help us get through the situation. I think the bottom line is that we need to have better health care um, sooner, closer to home for Canadians. And I think that's what we want to achieve. And so I, I'm open to any, uh, any ideas there that, that you may have, Joyce, and others may have. But I think the bottom line is, is that Canadians expect us, different levels of government, to come together and have those discussions. And so that's really all we're asking for. Would private sector delivery of health care services enter in that conversation that you would have with the federal government? Is that something that you and your colleagues across the, across the country 
are so looking private into delivery, Yeah, private delivery of healthcare exists now across the country. Uh, within a single-payer system, absolutely. And that's where we really want to to expand. I think that that's, you know, right now we don't have the capacity that we need to deliver the diagnostic and surgical procedures that certainly in our own province that we need to do. And so we are looking at ways to to expand that, absolutely. Again, within a single-payer system, which is the government, you know, your health care, uh, your health card is your your ticket to health care, right? But, but who delivers that? You know, there's room for expansion there. So we absolutely are open to that. Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Thanks so much, Joyce. We did invite the federal health minister to come on the program to respond, but he was unavailable. Coming up, Inflation Nation. Are rising interest rates still the answer in the face of a slowing economy? Are criticisms from politicians hurting the central bank's credibility? Former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge is here next. Stay right here with Question Period. We actually do need to slow the economy to relieve the price pressures. But when we get through this slowdown, growth's going to pick up, the economy is going to grow solidly, and we're going to have low and predictable inflation. That's the destination. An admission from Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin that the Canadian economy is slowing down, but he stopped short of using the word recession. His acknowledgement comes as the central bank increased its key interest rate on Wednesday for the sixth time since March, raising it by half a percentage point to 3.75%. And the governor warns interest rates will need to go up further to cool inflation. Recently, the bank has come under more fire, and not just from Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre. On this show last week, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said aggressive rake heights are without merit, and he urged the Liberal government to do more to help Canadians. So, what could a recession look like in Canada in our renewed criticisms of the central bank hurting its credibility? Joining me now is former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge. Welcome to Question Period. Good to have you here, uh, sir. Um, I want to ask you about the um, this past week, the governor, Tiff Macklin, increased the rate by half a percentage point. Everybody was expecting it to be uh, three quarters of a point. So there was a sigh of relief. Oh, maybe the cycle of aggressive increases is over. Is there a light of, at the end of the tunnel? What was your take? So I think a lot of us out there think that probably the terminal top rate was going to be somewhere between four, four and a quarter percent. Uh, and the question was how to approach that, whether you approach that more rapidly or less rapidly. They had been moving very rapidly up till now. Uh, they decided to approach it slightly less rapidly. Uh, but I think the, the objective remains the same. I think what Joyce, what's really important to remember is the impact of what has been done and what may be done over the next remainder of this year is really only going to be a, a felt next spring. Yeah. Right? And so everybody... But the fear, the fear is felt now. This, was, this is a very aggressive... Since March, he has been extremely aggressive. In fact, the most aggressive central bank... Uh, if you look at the figures and you look at the charts. So it has been, is, has he gone too fast, too far? 
too soon? No, I think the right thing was to go fast because they started too late. All the central banks started too late. But particularly here in North America, where we have had very, very strong recovery. We've never had a recovery as rapid as the one we had in, in uh, 21. I mean, it, it was incredible. And so we kind of misjudged uh, the speed, right? And it was great that it recovered fast, but we misjudged that speed. So we didn't quite move early enough. And that meant that central banks had to move faster. But is that too much of a hit for consumers, right? Because you've got to think about, yes, the monetary policy, the, the, the fiscal policy. You also have to think about, and I'm sure governors have to think about that, the impact on Canadians. Right. So the right thing, you asked me with my opinion, the right thing was to go very fast. The right thing is to not go too far because what we we know that the impact of what we've done is only going to come out, out next spring. And we don't know what else is going to be going on in the world next spring. And so you need to have a little bit of flexibility. So my judgment is that they've been doing a very good job. So let me ask Quite you the rightly. question because it, it's the elephant in the room. You know, the, the, Tiff Macklin fell short of saying, he said there's a chance that there may be a recession, slow down for sure. What is he telling us? So he's telling us there may or may not be a recession. He's leaving the door open. What do you think? I think that, that there will be no growth in this economy between now and the end of 2023. Whether that means a couple of quarters, negative quarters, or whatever, I, I can't predict that. But, but we are set up for a period of essentially no growth. The one thing that is different this time, when we normally think of a recession with a capital R, we think of massive unemployment and massive dislocation. We are starting, our starting point it's right strong. now the mar- the is incredibly is strong, strong, right? And so we've got quite a way to ratchet, uh, ratchet this back. Um, and it does take time for the production side of the economy to catch up because there's a lot of structural change going on. And structural change is difficult to manage. Uh, and in the past, when we've had structural change, it's usually been accompanied by quite a bit of inflation in that process. So it's a very difficult time where we're navigating, and I think that's the right word, we're navigating our way through rather choppy seas. And we don't, we, we want to be a bit like Goldilocks, right? We don't want to be too hot or too cold to navigate through. But what is really important, and I will say this because I lived through the 1970s and the mistakes that we made in the 1970s. And the really important thing is not to allow inflation to become entrenched. Yes. Because once it's entrenched, it is really expensive so to that's get rid his, of. So that is his biggest fear. Um, but he has been, Tiff Macklem has, has, has gotten some pretty hard hits. First of all, uh, Pierre Poiliev, the leader of the Conservative Party, saying he would fire him. Um, you know, um, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, saying his rates are without merit. That has got to, he says he leaves politics to the politicians, but the impact on the federal government, on the, on the, on, on the Trudeau government, has got to be something the governor of the Bank of Canada 
takes into account? Would he take that into account, the political pressure and criticism out there? So the, the political criticism or pressure comes, not, comes from the problems that are out there in the actual real world, right? And so the bank is very sensitive to that, especially at a time, as the bank has said, that our consumers are highly indebted compared to earlier periods. And so the bank is incredibly well, sensitive Well, they're indebted also because of the policy of the bank. I mean, the bank has encouraged Canadians to spend with super low interest rates and is now, you know, really punishing consumers, right, punishing Canadians with this, these incredible hikes. So yeah. you can understand we, how some people would blame the bank. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And politicians are reacting to that. Absolutely. Um, and that's why we have the setup that we have. The operational independence is to the bank, but the bank is accountable uh, to meet those inflation targets. And they and the federal government have signed on the line that that's their job and that's what they're trying to do. So the fall fiscal update is coming up this week. Uh, much awaited, actually, uh, fall fiscal update. What do you expect from that? Uh, well, the Minister of Finance and the Governor talk to each other, right? And, and they share the analysis of what's happening out there in the economy. And so it's quite important. And historically, ever since the coin affair back in, in, in the early 60s, we've done quite well in keeping monetary and fiscal policy aligned. Sometimes they get a bit out of line, but we've tried to keep them in line. So I expect that the federal government will do a little bit to try help those folks right at the uh, bottom of the income scale that are particularly hard hit. Um, and that's, that is understandable, it is understandable. Um, but that they don't want to add fuel to the fire. David Dodge, thanks so much for this. Pleasure. After the break, finding Ford. Is Ontario Premier Doug Ford's refusal to appear before the Emergencies Act Commission the right move? And what's ahead for the inquiry with key protest organizers set to testify this week? Political campaign strategist Mitch Hempel joins the scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Pointing and the so-called Freedom Convoy. The inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act continues this week. The Commission has so far heard from City of Ottawa residents and officials and several levels of law enforcement. Still to come are protest organizers including Tamara Leach and Pat King and eight federal cabinet ministers. But notably absent from the witness list is Ontario Premier Doug Ford. This week, the Commission issued a summons for Ford to testify after he allegedly ignored repeated calls to appear voluntarily. Ford is challenging the summons, arguing he has parliamentary privilege, which can preclude members of the Ontario legislature from being compelled to testify in certain legal proceedings. The application for a judicial review is set to be heard this Tuesday. So is Ford's refusal to appear the right play? And what's ahead for the inquiry with key protest organizers expected to testify this week? The Scrum is here to answer that. 
John Iverson is a political columnist and the bureau chief of the National Post here in Ottawa. Marike Walsh is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Mitch Hempel, a political campaign strategist and a former chief of staff in Ontario Premier Doug Ford's government. Hello to the three of you. Good to have you. Um, Mitch, I want to start with you. You wrote on, in an op-ed this week that Premier Ford was right to refuse the commission's request to appear. Why do you think so? So I think for two reasons. The first of which is this isn't his baseball game. Like this, the commission is is convened under the Emergencies Act to examine the federal government's decisions uh, and the results of those decisions. And Doug Ford doesn't sit in the federal cabinet. Invoking the Federal Emergencies Act wasn't his call. And I think it's probably time that the prime minister's decision stopped being an, a teachable moment for everybody else. Uh, in addition to that, just as a premier, it's his job to respect and and protect the responsibilities and the authority of the legislative branch. And I don't think any premier could have allowed one of the MP, one of their MPPs and especially themselves to be summoned by a court that doesn't have the authority to do it. So, Marika, the, the, the commission said they made repeated requests for him to appear. Uh, how does that make him look politically? Or does Mitch have a point? I mean, the, the, the premier said this is a federal inquiry, it's a federal act. He repeated federal about five times. Does he pay a political price? I actually think there's, it's yes to both. I think that that he politically, strategically is making the right move if he can avoid being a witness because I don't think he'll come out looking very good. Most witnesses haven't so far. And on the flip side, I think though there are transparency questions that do need to be put to him. Ottawa is in Ontario. The police are creatures of the province, not of the federal government. And the question for Doug Ford is why was it so mishandled that the federal government needed to step in? And that seems to be something that he has magically avoided answering and it's actually really some savvy political strategy that he has completely dodged accountability on this issue. So, is that a good strategy? Well, I think he is within his bounds. I think he's, you know, I think there is a parliamentary privilege issue here in that the point Mitch points out that you can't just summon a, a, a sitting, uh, an MPP or an, M, or a, or an MP to, to court and therefore miss votes or whatever. It, there is a principle there. But while privilege might exist, he's abusing it. I mean, when, when Trudeau said uh, Doug Ford is hiding, I think he had a point. I mean, mm -hmm. when you look through the testimony yeah. we've seen so far, um, there were the mayor of Ottawa was trying to arrange meetings and, you know, Doug Ford was like McCavity the cat. He was nowhere to be found. And then uh, the city manager for Ottawa was, was talking about uh, trying to get the Solicitor General at the time, Sylvie Jones, mm -hmm. who's also been summoned, to get her involved. And she totally washed her hands of it, according to him saying this was a police issue and that the, the law enforcement officials should talk to each other and elected officials should not be involved, which all of which seems to me to be a violation of, not only of the rule of law, but of accountability. This is what, how our country is run. So, Mitch, in, in the judicial review application to quash the summons, Ford's team states, quote, irreparable, irreparable harm will occur if a stay is not granted. Do you agree? I mean, is, is he right to... Uh, claim parliamentary privilege or does he have a duty as Marika says to answer these questions well so yes it's it's irreparable harm to the institution of privilege if the court allows the judicial inquiry in this case to allow any elected official to be summoned like that's a precedent and so that is irre irrevocable harm 
uh, to, to John's sort of point, though, like, I mean, I, I, it's difficult to fault the Premier for wanting to, pa to opt out of one of the biggest buck-passing exercises I think we've seen recently. <laughs> um, I think if Jim Watson tried to pass any more bucks, he'd qualify as a currency trader after his testimony. Um, but just, like, it, ultimately, this is about, and, and the Act is very clear on this. And, and like, you got to give credit to Perrin Beatty for, for writing it this way. Like, it's a federal decision to implement the Act, the inquiry looking into that decision is supposed to examine the federal government's decision-making and actions. Like the, the federal council lawyers, to their credit, have done a very good job of trying to shine a light just about everywhere else. And God knows nobody attracts a bigger spotlight than Doug Ford. But ultimately, the core mandate of this commission is the federal government's decision. And this sideshow this week has largely allowed the federal government to avoid talking about that. So as of tomorrow, Actually, organizers are going to come and start testifying at this hearing. Marika, what are you looking for? I think that the testimony this week brings the theater of the commission to a whole new level than we've seen so far, and that will draw a lot of eyeballs. But I think what actually will be the most revealing could be the documents that come with it, the discussions, the text messages around these organizers, what they were saying behind the scenes, what they were saying to police, I think will hopefully reveal a lot more about what police were dealing with. Yeah. And if you fit those two together, we might get a better picture of what was actually happening. How interesting. So the theater will continue this week. Mitch Hempel and Marika Walsh, thanks for joining us. John Iveson will stay with us. Still to come, federal finances. Finance Minister Christian Freeland will be unveiling her fall economic statement later this week. How can the federal government balance restraint while tackling the rising cost of living? Former Finance Minister John Manley joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland is set to unveil the federal government's fall economic statement this Thursday. And for weeks, she has been signaling fiscal restraint amid recession concerns. Meanwhile, the Bank of Canada has once again raised its key interest rate, this time by three-quarters of a percentage point, and Governor Tiff Macklem says he's not done. This amidst heavy criticism from the Conservative and NDP leaders about the effectiveness of increasing the rate. So what could be ahead in Freeland's fall economic statement, and is criticism towards the Bank of Canada fair? The Scrum is here to answer that. John Iveson is a political journalist, a columnist, and also the bureau chief of the National Post here in Ottawa. Amber Kanwar is an anchor and reporter with BNN Bloomberg. And our special guest is John Manley, a former finance minister and current senior business advisor at Bennett Jones. Good morning to the three of you. Thanks uh, for being there. Uh, John Manley, I want to start with you because... We're expecting a fall economic statement this week. Um, you know, you heard what Christian Freeland said these past weeks. Uh, this is not a government known for its fiscal restraint. What are you expecting? I thought she was, you know, dragging out some old scripts of mine that I'd used back in my time, <laughs> telling my colleagues that they were going to have to find money in their own departments if they wanted to fund any new programs. You're right, this is not something we've heard since 2015, for sure, uh, but it's, it's a timely message and it's the right message. So, John, how does, how does this government balance 
its supply and confidence agreement with the NDP who want them to f f spend, spend, spend. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you know, they heed the message from the Bank of Canada, which is increasing interest rates to control uh, inflation. So, so how does politically, how do they play it? Well, I think politically they're, they're, they're the key or the cornerstone of that agreement is the dental plan, which we've already seen some measures taken um, for the under-12s, and they're going to roll that out. I think if, if Jagmeet gets that, Jagmeet Singh gets that, then he can turn to his caucus and say, look, we've, we've, we've achieved something. But it, it is kind of interesting that the government is in a, a kind of peculiar spot. And funnily enough, it's not because of rising deficits. We've just seen the fiscal uh, monitor, which came out on Friday and said, in the five months to the end of August, we actually had a surplus. And that's partly because revenues are up because of inflation and partly because program costs are down because of uh, COVID measures being, being cut off. But the real problem is if the government keeps spending lots of money, it's working at cross purposes to what the Bank of Canada is doing on inflation. And they've already done that to some extent with a you know, $12 billion package of relief measures for rental and dental and all these other things. So, that, so Freeland is essentially saying we can't keep doing that. And, and I don't think that is going to go down well with the NDP. Well, that's what I think. But I want to bring Amber in here. So Governor Tiff Macklin says he's done, he's not done actually raising those interest rates. You know, what's the general consensus among economists about where we will end up by the end of the year? With respect to rates, uh, likely that we're towards the end of raising rates, but certainly not done yet. And the wild card is about inflation. It is still high. Yes, it's come down, but these rate hikes have not really moved the needle with respect to bringing inflation down to 2%. And with respect to the, the fiscal budget, the fiscal update, I mean, they're going to have to be mindful of that. They cannot go out uh, and spend, 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 because the market will simply not tolerate that. And if you want kind of the most recent example, you can walk over and ask Liz Truss how that went when she decided to go uh, and propose a budget that went against what the market was looking for. So, John Manley, Central Bank is actually being attacked not for only from the, from the right, uh, but also now from, from Jagmeet Singh, who said, you know, what his, his increases were not necessary. Does that concern you that the bank is under, you know, under attack politically and has become like a political ping pong ball? Well, no, the bank's been under attack before. Uh, those of us that remember John Crow's time in office will remember that there was lots of criticism leveled in those days. But the truth is, uh, it's the independence of the Bank of Canada that's one of those cornerstones that the markets rely upon. And uh, if, there, if there was a criticism this week, it was, oh my gosh, maybe in going for half a point instead of three quarters of a point, he actually was listening to some of the political criticism because that does spook markets. And Amber's exactly right. Just look across the sea and see what happens. Markets don't vote in leadership conventions. <laughs> they don't vote in general elections, but they have a vote. And when they cast their vote, it can be very determinative of what happens in an economy. But you know, it's fun, uh, interesting to, to see this. The bank makes its decisions independently, but the political implications or, or who takes the political hit is the, uh, the federal, the government. Right. So th this bank has been the most aggressive in its increases uh, practically in the world. It's leading these aggressive increases. How will that play with the public? 
Well, it's, it's six increases in a year, so it's a quite dramatic. I mean, but, but I mean, if people and the got, highest ones. But if people have got uh, memories going back 10, 20 years, I mean, we were, we saw rates of 20 percent or so at, at one point, and, and um, you know, inflation was was up 17, 18 percent. John will remember better than me. But um, you know, so the so the government does take a hit. And I was talking to people in government this week about you know our recession recessions government killers. And they pointed to the Harper uh, government, which survived the, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. I think it was slightly different in that people then really thought, you know, we're on, we're on the edge of the precipice and we, you know, we could be eating dog meat here. Um, this time around, it's different. I don't think people feel quite so concerned and they're more, they are angry about the affordability stuff. Amber, I, I see that you, that, that you want to talk. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, well, just to pick up on that, I mean, to say that the Bank of Canada, you know, that they should be fired for raising rates. Remember, the Bank of Canada is not operating on an island. They are part of what is happening globally. We're not the only ones raising rates. Our neighbors to the south are also raising rates. In Europe, they're also raising rates because everybody is trying to fight inflation. And let's say the Bank of Canada didn't raise rates. You know what would happen? Our currency would be in free fall because we would not be in lockstep with the global economy and that would stoke inflation even worse so yes you know there might be some political issues here at home but the the cost of not acting would be significantly worse and ultimately uh, you know affect the lives of everyone here that is not to say that you can't do stimulative things in the fiscal update that don't require going uh, you know, further into the red. There's a lot of things that businesses have been calling for, like reducing regulatory red tape that allows businesses to kind of act a lot more swiftly. And perhaps the most effective thing would be on immigration. One of the flywheels that's uh, supporting inflation right now is the fact that wages are very high. So somebody's wage is another person, somebody's spending is another person's income. If you are able to uh, break that through getting in skilled workers and unskilled workers so that people have more options when they're looking to hire, you know, that's a stimulative measure that doesn't necessarily cost you and force you to go further and further into deficit. So there certainly are creative ways to be stimulative without breaking the bank. How interesting. And we'll know a lot more on Thursday when we see that uh, fiscal update. That's unfortunately all the time we have. John Manley, Amber Canwar, and John Iveson, thanks so much for joining us. And that's Question Period for this week. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back here in seven short days.